Well, good morning. Hey, I didn't introduce myself earlier. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here. I would love to get a chance to meet you this morning. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, we're glad that you're here. It was a joy to be worshiping together this morning. I just love those songs. And as we unfold another psalm this morning, you will see just how perfect each one of those songs was. Um, Before we dig into this psalm, though, I want to take just a couple minutes and pray and ask for God's help as we move into this next phase of our worship this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are your people, redeemed and made into sons and daughters through Jesus. And we come this morning to worship you, and you know that, Lord, we are still in desperate need of your constant care and provision for us. So I pray for that now in this moment. Lord, we bring with us this morning cares and needs and fears and sadness, Lord, along with our joys and thanksgiving. And Lord, we lift up together anyone who has entrusted themselves to our prayers this week. Lord, we lift them to you. We pray especially for those who are ill, who are in the hospital, who are grieving. Would you comfort them this morning? And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who need to work this morning. Would you meet them as they work and labor? For our friends who are away on vacation, we pray that they would experience you this morning wherever they are. And Lord, would you come to our aid as we open your word? Speak clearly to us. Fill us with your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Christoph led us through Psalm 117, which is the shortest psalm and the shortest chapter in the entire Bible. This week, we're going to look at Psalm 145. Whereas the beauty of Psalm 117 was in its succinctness and its shortness, the beauty in Psalm 145 is in its expressiveness and all the details that it goes into about the worship of our God. It's the same theme this week. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn there to Psalm 145, or you can tap there on your phone, whatever you're using. We're going to read that momentarily. This Psalm 145 is the last Psalm of David in the book of the Psalms. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, called it David's crown jewel of praise. You could call it David's pinnacle of praise, maybe. Each line in this Psalm is a reason for us to praise God. It's a joyful expression of God's abundance Throughout it, we'll see David praising God for who he is as God and then what he does because of who he is. Psalm 145, I'll read it for us. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. 
They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh Bless his holy name forever and ever. It's amazing. The breadth of topic and the amount of detail that David includes in this psalm for why he praises God and why we get to praise God. Before we get into that, the rich content of it, I want to briefly talk about the overall structure. This might sound a little nerdy, but it's important, and I think we can learn a bit from what David is doing here. This psalm is written in the form of an acrostic poem, which means that each new verse is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So like verse 1 in English would be A, and then verse 2 would be B, and verse 3 would be C, all the way through till Z, but in Hebrew, of course. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Look at how many verses there are. 21. So 21 verses, but 22 letters. Well, that's because, like some of David's other poems that he wrote in this way, this is an imperfect acrostic, meaning it's missing a letter. Take a look at verse 13, if you have your Bible in front of you. Verse 13 starts with, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. If we were writing a psalm of praise in English using this form, Verse 13 would have the letter M, and then verse 14 would have the letter O, meaning we skipped the letter N, L-M-N-O, right? That's an easy one to remember in sequence. So this is imperfect, but why in the world would David do that? Why would he do that? So at the end of verse 13, our English translations try to make up for his error a little bit. If you look in the ESV, that I read out of, it's in brackets. Brackets. It says, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And you might have a little translation note that says something like, this phrase is found in some later manuscripts and in only one Hebrew manuscript, which means that phrase that is supplied in our English Bibles was probably not in the original. Most scholars would say that was probably not in what David originally wrote. In fact, I checked it in my English translation of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, and in the Jewish Old Testament, 
that, that phrase, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works, is not there. So most likely it was not there. It's not heretical, it's still beautiful. But our English translation is, or some later scribe tried to make up for this imperfection. Why did you skip the letter N? This is why I'm bringing this all up, okay? This will get a little nerdy, I know. There's two compelling reasons, I think, that are really instructive for us of why David may have left out that letter. First, he may be illustrating with the beauty of this psalm, even with this at our disposal, even with all the poetic beauty that David put forth for us, our human minds are still not able to fully comprehend the greatness and the beauty and the splendor of God. We're just not able to. That's part of what he means when he says that God's greatness is unsearchable. Our minds can't quite wrap themselves all the way around who God is. And by leaving out a letter and letting this thing just be imperfect, David is illustrating, here's my words, but my words can't do all that needs to be done to describe who God is and how great God is. So that's the first reason. I think it's pretty compelling. The second reason that David might have left out a letter and left this imperfect is that it reminds us that right now, right now, each one of us, having been redeemed, is still broken. We've been redeemed by God. We've been filled with his spirit, but we're still broken and needing of full renewal, full redemption. The imperfection reminds us that we're living in a world that also needs this. We're living in a broken world that isn't yet what it will be. And this imperfection reminds us that one of his purposes for us, his people, is that as God's light shines on us and transforms our darkness into lightness, that we would in turn reflect that bright lightness into all the dark places that we find ourselves in in the world. It reminds us that we are the church on mission. We are the church given an important task to be his ambassadors in the world in the midst of things not being how they ought to be yet. Things are not how they will be. But the completeness of all things is assured. Our hope that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith is secure. He will set all things right. And it's from within that place of things not being how they will be that we praise him, that we overflow with joy and with life to him. So those are two reasons I think that David may have left this imperfect, and I think they're helpful. All of our worship will not quite capture who God is, yet God will complete what he began, and we sing to him and we worship him through that. So what other ideas, just think for a minute, come to your mind as you think about worship? What people, what pictures are attached to that word worship in your mind? Do you think of a vital, fully alive human being, someone whose strongest desires and passions align with reality in such a way that they live life to its absolute fullest? Or do you think of something a bit tamer, a bit more boring, more religious and muted perhaps? 
These ideas and the images that we hold in our mind that we attach to worship are important because whatever they are, whatever they are, they will influence how we carry out what David shows us to do today. Kids, are you with me? It's so fun having you in here this summer. I have a short illustration for you kids. As I was thinking about this psalm and worship, I just happened to be seeing a lot of eagles. I love that we live in a place where it's possible to see eagles as we do life. Aren't they beautiful to watch soar through the air? It's amazing. I never tire of it. And I've learned from my father-in-law that whenever I see one, I say out loud, thank you, God, because that's what he does all the time when he sees them. But watching eagles fly is something. But imagine for a minute an eagle in the wild that had no problems with its physical body and makeup. But instead of soaring majestically from place to place, it just walked from place to place. It would be a bit funny, a bit odd. And I think as we watch that eagle walk from place to place, we would actually feel like this is actually pretty sad because that eagle was meant to soar majestically through the air, but yet it's just walking on the ground. That's a bit of what worship is like for human beings. Worship is our soaring through the air. Not worshiping God is us walking around the ground like an eagle. It's not what we were meant for. We were meant to worship God, to be full of his life and joy and power all the time. And David paints a vivid picture of this freedom and this beauty that we were all meant for. This morning, we're going to divide this psalm into four sections that highlight David's four focuses of worship. First, he praises the Lord for his greatness, for his goodness, for his kingdom, and for his provision. First, praise the Lord for his greatness. David does this throughout this entire psalm, but he does it especially in the first six verses that we read. As the psalm begins, David is speaking personally and directly to God, his great king, telling him of his greatness. God, you are great. This is David fulfilling that purpose that I just talked about, the purpose for which human beings were created. We were made to love and to enjoy and to delight in God. This is David with clarity about reality. It's a moment of overflow of his heart. David gazing upon the living God and experiencing and expressing what he sees. There's no embellishment in what he's saying. There's no sentimentality. Instead, David finds himself at the end of what his vocabulary can express. Words can describe the glory and the beauty and the splendor of God, but they can't fully plumb the depths of who God is. Look at how intentionally David does this throughout the psalm. Over and over again, he uses different words to describe how he praises. Look at all these words that I found. He uses words like extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, meditate, speak, pour forth, sing, Give thanks, tell, and make known. 
That's a great list. And he was so intentional as he didn't repeat them. He just kept using new ones as they came to his mind. We often think of worship primarily with one of those words, I think, with sing. I want to go back to something Christoph said last week that I think was really important. I want to underscore it and emphasize it again. Worship is not only the times that we sing together on Sunday morning. All of what we do together on Sunday morning is worship. Right now, we're worshiping by hearing and meditating on and obeying God's word. It's an act of worship. But then beyond Sunday morning, beyond our corporate gathering together, worship is not confined to a set time, is it? Or a set place. It's not even confined to things that we would typically categorize as religious in nature. We worship continually throughout our lives. We worship because that's all we can do. We can't help but worship. All the time, our hearts are worshiping. Every thought we think and every word we speak and every deed that we do is an expression of worship to something or someone. And an important and amazing part of following Jesus as his disciple is that we get to learn more and more what it looks like to worship the true and living God in every area of our life. Part of what that means is as we follow Jesus, he alerts us to, he wakes us up to all the counterfeit gods that our hearts are clinging to or are tempted to cling to. And he shows us how the promises that they hold for us are empty. When we give our lives over to them, we learn it just results in slavery. It results in me not being who I was created to be. Enjoying the freedom and glory as a child of God. That's what repentance looks like. We turn from those things that are counterfeits and will actually just enslave us to the true and living God where we find life and joy and fullness as we worship him. And as we worship God, our focus and our attention and our desires begin to be placed outside of ourselves upon God. We seek not our own interests, but his interests. Our focus becomes not the greatness of our problems, but the greatness of his splendor. To seek to bless God the way David says to is to seek his good. To ask the question, what would bring God joy? What would bless God's heart? What is best for God right now? This is transformative, right? Because the typical human focus is pretty much on ourselves. We don't need anyone to teach us to seek our own interests, to look out for our own hopes and wishes and desires. We just do that. But as we worship, we are freed from that. Because every desire and every object of focus that we have in our lives that isn't subordinated to God, that isn't placed under God, will in the end lead to our slavery. It will prevent us from soaring like an eagle and keep us just walking on the ground. God is here to free us from that, that we can live out who we were created to be in him. It can't be overstated what a massive reorientation of life it is 
that the proper order, the proper place that joyful worship of God has in our life. Just, I'll give you just one example of how it changes things. Think about the question that I think many of us get on a Sunday morning after worship. How was church? I don't know if you've ever had that question. As a pastor, I do get that question a lot. So how was church? If someone asks you that later today, think about how you would typically answer that question, the perspective that you would bring to it. If you're like me, you probably would start by thinking, well, what did I think of it? How was it for me? Did I enjoy it? Did Jay make me laugh? Was the worship emotive and did I feel a lot? And that's fine, right? That's, that's great and normal. But I think what I'm talking about here, about right worship and blessing and loving God through it, is that we would want to start asking the question when someone says, how was church? How was church this morning? Through the lens of, how was it for God? What did God think of my worship this morning? Wouldn't it be so different to start evaluating, like just this morning, through that lens primarily, what was it like for God? Was he given praise? Was he loved and enjoyed? Was his power cried out for? He, he delights in that. But think about that perspective in all of life. The workday and the neighborhood and just shopping for groceries. Think about applying that lens. What was this like for God? How did this bless him? And then we'll start to see more and more how every moment of our lives we're worshiping. Every moment of our life is an opportunity to delight in him. In verse 2, David says that he will bless God every day. Every day, over and over, we are made to worship God. Think about every day. That means good days, and it means bad days, restful vacation days, long work days, happy days, and sad days. Every single day of our life was a day that was made for praising God. And in each one of our days, all of our life, there is ample reason to praise Him. Now, I know that that's a lot easier for me to say than it is to actually feel and be in the moment, especially when the day is not gone well or when the day is really hard. But God is showing us with this psalm that it is true. Every single day of our lives, there is ample reason to praise God, no matter our circumstance. These last few months, I've been learning what that means very personally in my own life, to praise him when things aren't as easy. I've been learning to do that as I've been grieving my mom the last few months, the loss of my mom. I have experienced that it is possible to be deeply sad, to be grieving someone you love, and to praise and thank God at the same time. Grief has become for me an opportunity to worship God. I'll get specific so you know what I mean by that. For me, what I mean is when I have those moments where I just feel the grief intensely, or just hits me, 
which is often so random when it does. With God's help, I look for and I recall the reasons that I'm feeling the grief, the reasons that I'm missing my mom. And every reason that I can come up with and all of the memories that are attached to those reasons are reminders of the gift of God that she was to me. All the examples of goodness that I miss are all examples of God's greatness showered upon my life and love towards me. And I can praise and thank him for that and for her, even in the middle of feeling intense grief. By worshiping God in that way, he has increasingly become my one reference point for all of life. And he can become all of our one reference point for all of life. When that happens, we begin to see more and more of life through him and less and less of life apart from him. We can praise him every day, no matter the circumstance, because he is the anchor of our soul in every single circumstance. One more highlight from this first section about the greatness of God. Verse 4. It says, One generation shall commend your works to another. What a thought that is, isn't it? Of all the generations who came before us, people who, like us, have found God to be faithful again and again, generation after generation of God-fearing, Jesus-believing, Holy Spirit-filled people have testified to the work and greatness of God in their lives. We have it both captured in our scriptures when we read about the experience of God's people, but then we have it in each other as we experience him in our daily lives. We have this sure and firm word of God that captures all these generations that came before us, but then we have our experience, our living experience of his greatness, of the great works that he's doing in our lives. And we need to share those with each other. It can be so easy, I think, just to assume that we're remembering all the time all the goodness and the greatness of God in our lives, but we need to be intentional about telling each other the goodness and the greatness that we're experiencing from God in our lives. Because God's people have done that. Every generation has shared with the next generation so that we could hear through God's grace and the faithfulness of those who came before us, we know him. And the really exciting thing to me is that now it's our turn. They were faithful and obedient, full of God's spirit, and now we get to be that for the next generation. So to me, this psalm also calls to mind mission, alerting others to the kingdom of God, to the reign of God, to the availability of a relationship with God through Jesus. It's our turn. To me, that is so exciting that we get to do that together. We get to praise God for his greatness. And second, David shows us we get to praise the Lord for his goodness. For his goodness. As God's people reflect on his goodness, they will praise him. As they remember all the ways that he has been good in their lives, they will overflow with joy before him. I just want to focus our attention on one verse in this section, verse 8. Verse 8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
That is one of the most important pieces of revelation that we have in our scriptures. It's a quotation from the book of Exodus of an unbelievable encounter that Moses, God's servant, had with him. I just want to briefly recount the context of this because it will help us understand what David's doing here in this psalm. The context was the devastating rebellion of God's people. God's people, Israel, had been enslaved in Egypt and God rescued them and freed them from what was impossible for themselves to free themselves from. He freed them that they could worship and serve him and him alone. And David was with God, receiving, after, these, after his people were freed, receiving instructions on worship. He had two tablets, and he was receiving from God how they ought to worship him. And the people got impatient and antsy while they were waiting for him to come back. And they decided to create and manufacture a counterfeit God. This is the famous golden calf. People exchanged the worship of the living God who had freed them and rescued them from Egypt to worship something they made with their own hands, a golden calf. Now what? What would God do in response to this rebellion? Exodus 32.10 says, this is God speaking, he says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He had promised to make a great nation, but now they had turned from him. And you can see in this verse that he's determined to still make them a great nation, but his wrath is burning against this rebellion. But amazingly and stunningly, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and he reminds God who God is. God, you have been faithful to your people over and over and over again. And you made promises to Abraham that you will bring forth, that you will cause to come to fruition. And one of those is that they would be a great nation. And God remembers. It's not that God actually forgot, right? But he remembers. And then Moses gets another chance to meet with God with some new tablets of stone. And as the Lord passes before him, we read Exodus 34, 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What breathtakingly good news this is for us, church. Because are we any different than them? I mean, this psalm this morning is all about the joy of worshiping God in fullness and joy and life. Yet how many times have we made our own version of the golden calf? How many times have we experienced the powerful deliverance of God in our lives only to turn away and worship something so much less than him? Every single time we sin, every single time we disobey him, we're failing to worship. Psalm 145 isn't true in our lives in that moment. We too are deserving of God's just judgment. What are we to do? Do we just pretend like it didn't happen? Do we just promise that from here on out, 
I'll do better? Do we try making up for the bad thing we did with something good? Maybe we just completely give up because it seems impossible. I don't know. Our only hope is the grace and mercy of God received through Jesus. Every single day of our lives, Jesus is our only and sole hope. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news is that because God is gracious and merciful, because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he has provided abundantly for our need of forgiveness and healing and redemption in his son. Through Jesus' life and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, he did everything that was necessary in order that we could have right relationship with God in order that it wouldn't all be over, just like it wasn't all over for the Israelites when they turned from him and made the golden calf. Our work now is to trust Jesus and receive from him all that he accomplished for us, including, importantly, his spirit, who he gives us when we turn to him in faith. What do we do in response to this goodness to us? David shows us. We praise him. We thank him. We bless him. We worship him with our whole lives, with God's spirit in us as we think about all the ways that God has been so good to each one of us. We can't help but worship and we can't help but find refuge in him. David shows us we get to praise God for his greatness and for his goodness. And the last two are going to be a little quicker here, so don't worry. Third, we worship God for his kingdom, for his kingdom. That's in verses 11 to 13. They're all about the glory of God's kingdom. God's kingdom here in this psalm isn't primarily about a place and the way we might think about a human kingdom that has national boundaries to it and a, and a physical what's in and out of that kingdom. It's not so much about a sphere as it's about God's reign, about God being king, about his active reign over all things, his power, his mighty deeds that manifest in our life. Given what we just read about God's goodness and mercy and grace, this is wonderful news because God's kingdom, his reign is good and it brings about good. It brings life. His kingdom sets all things right. Earlier this year, we learned a ton about God's kingdom as we walked through the Sermon on the Mount and heard Jesus' teachings about it. His kingdom is characterized not by anger or by lust or by broken promises or manipulation or retaliation, but by love and forgiveness and mercy and gentleness and a living, ongoing connection with God. It's upside down and it's growing, and it's expanding, and it will never come to an end. And we get to be part of it. Friday morning, a friend texted this passage, Colossians 1, 13 and 14 to me, and it's perfect for this, for this part of this psalm. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins the forgiveness of our sins. 
We've been transferred into a new kingdom, one that is full of freedom and life and not slavery and death. We get to take on his character and learn his ways. Oh, praise him. Praise him for his kingdom. Finally, in the remainder of the psalm, David shows us that we get to praise God for his provision in our life. This section is full of promises of God's provision for our hearts. And we desperately need to take them in and dwell upon them. Each one of these verses from 14 on could be an entire sermon on its own because of what it promises us and how that changes our lives. These promises are a lifeline. And these promises worked out in our life are how we see God's greatness and goodness and kingdom bring life to us, how we experience them in our life. Our worship will be the culmination and the outworking of our experience of God in this way. Have you ever thought about how needy we are as human beings? I mean, I know we like to posture, no big deal, I've got it. No problem, don't worry about it. I'm fine, I've got this. But really, let's be honest, we are needy. We do not contain in ourselves what we need to thrive. We don't contain within ourselves what we need to survive. Just last week, I was swimming with my kids and we were playing this game, a few of us, where we'd see who could swim under the water the farthest. And it's really fun, but we didn't get very far because we're pretty needy, right? We cannot go without oxygen for very long, just a few minutes. And all of us in here are gone. We are desperately in need of that. And that's not to mention food and water and sleep, how fleeting sleep can be. I mean, these are just a few of the basic things that we need that are not within us. They come from outside us. Sleep is a gift from God. You know when you're struggling with it what a gift it is from him, how fleeting it can be. David says in this section of the psalm, you give them their food in due season. Every good thing that we need in order to survive and flourish comes from God. Every single good thing that we've ever had comes from his hand. And then think about all the other things that that aren't so basic like food and water and air, but that we need in order to thrive. How important to us are our relationships, getting to interact with each other. What a good rediscovery we've had the last few years of how important that is to have connection with each other. It is vital for us. We need protection from things that might harm us, right? Our needs, of course, include the unseen, the non-physical, things as well. We are dependent creatures, like sheep, constantly needing shepherding because we don't know what's good for us. David says, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Church, God has been providing for each one of us every moment of our lives. Let's praise him for that. Let's worship him for the overflow of his abundance in our lives. And ultimately, all our needs and all our neediness are wrapped up in our need of Jesus. Until we have him, no matter how much we have of anything else, 
we are not going to be okay. Jesus taught that he was the bread of life and that he was the source of living water that would forever quench our thirst. He is who we need more than anything else. And in him, we find sufficiency for everything else. Knowing in Christ and experiencing him in that way will lead us to worship. And worship is what we are meant for. So let's praise him for his greatness and his goodness and his kingdom and his provision. Let all creation bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And for through David's mouth, these words, you have given us so many reasons in your word and in our lives to worship you, to love you and enjoy you. Father, I pray for my heart and all my brothers and sisters' hearts this morning that you would increasingly, and even in this moment, Lord, fan into flame more and more that, is that which you have done in us. Rekindle our hearts, Lord, to desire you and to enjoy you and to worship you in every aspect of our lives. We know that that's why you made us. We know that's what we were made for. Would you help us to learn what it looks like more and more to enjoy you in that way? Lord, we praise you. You have saved us and rescued us and you have given us to each other. Thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.